0: Right. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, February the 1st. It is February. It's a great day to subscribe to The Local. Also, if you learn anything on The Local, share what you learn on social media. Encourage a friend to listen. Today, back in the day, February 1st, 1960, the Greensboro sit-ins began. Four university students in Greensboro, North Carolina, staged a sit-in protest at a whites-only lunch counter where they had previously been refused service because these four students were black. The sit-in lasted five months, three weeks, and three days. The movement spread to over 55 American cities resulted in the desegregation of lunch counters in Greensboro. Today, back in the day, February 1, 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon re-entry, killing all seven passengers aboard. After completing 28 missions, Space Shuttle Columbia was destroyed due to a hole in the edge of one wing. Upon re-entry into the atmosphere, the hole filled the surface with hot gas, leading to the breakup of the ship. The names of the lives lost, Rick Husband, William McCool, Michael Anderson, David Brown, Kalpala Chawla, Laurel Clark, and Elon Raymond. Today, back in the day, February 1st, 2010, the east side of Portland saw streetcar tracks for the first time since 1950. Eleven years ago today, tracks began to be laid for the 3.3-mile loop which extended the existing Portland streetcar tracks. That streetcar, which you're probably familiar with, continues to run across Grand Avenue through the Lloyd District and back over the Willamette River. In the post-war era, the streetcar was defeated by the automobile. Not only did people like it, also the car lobby, pretty influential. They were the markers, after all, that got people to say Jaywalkers instead of drivers." A Jay being an insult, calling somebody something of an uncontrollable rube. And in part, with that critique of Walker's, the automobile started owning the road. And it is February 1st. That is officially the first day of Black History Month. For this whole month, we'll be sharing stories of historical black Oregonians. Today, we want to tell you about Beatrice Morrow Kennedy. Kennedy was the editor and owner of The Advocate, Oregon's largest African-American newspaper. She used her platform to confront racial discrimination in restaurants, schools, and hotels, including challenging racial segregation at Longview, Washington schools. She kept her readers informed about KKK activities in the area. And to be clear, there were KKK activities in the area. A founding member of the Portland NAACP, a representative for the Pan-African Congress, and much, much more. Kennedy devoted her life to activism and civil rights. Thank you, Beatrice Morrow Kennedy. X-Ray. Today we have an interview with Elizabeth Thiel, president of the Portland Association of Teachers. And first up, it's time for today's Quick Sex Local Rundown. X-Ray. The Police Oversight Board might be phased out by next year sometime, even though its replacement is still in the air. Portland Auditor Mary Hull Caballero proposed a city budget that would eliminate the Independent Police Review by June 30th, 2022, about a year and a half. According to our settlement agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice, Portland has to have a system to address officer misconduct. Since the beginning of last summer, when protesters and police began clashing on a nightly basis, the IPR, Independent Police Review, has been flooded with complaints. From April to September, officers used force over 6,000 times. The IPR received over 4,000 calls about police conduct. Of these calls, the IPR opened 118 investigations. Hull's budget proposal calls for a 30% budget cut from the IPR's current $2.76 million budget over the next two years. Two IPR analysts will be reassigned to a new Evaluation and Investigative Services office that would, among other things, investigate complaints across city bureaus. All city bureaus. Last year, Portlanders voted to replace the IPR with a new oversight board, one that would have greater independence from the police bureau and one that would have greater powers. But many of the details remain undeveloped. The new board would be able to investigate a wide range of police conduct, including use of deadly force, and would be able to discipline and fire officers. But a commission still needs to decide how many members of the board will be selected, how long their terms will be, and lots of other details. And meanwhile, that new commission has been challenged in court by the Portland Police Association. They claim that changes to that oversight process have to be part of their contract. Meanwhile, according to a reliable listener of the local, the Portland Police Association has started sending out push polls. Push polls is a phone call that is purportedly a poll asking you for your opinion, when what it is also doing is trying to persuade you of the very thing it's trying to poll. The data garnered from a push poll isn't as useful, but they can be useful and delivering messages and persuading. According to our listener, they got questions including, are you registered? Did you vote for the oversight measure? And did you know it violates labor laws? To be clear, that is not me or the local saying it violates labor laws. That's me saying the poll they received made that claim. If you get info out there and you want to share it, you can email the local at xray.fm.
1: And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The latest data released on Saturday... Oregon Health Authority reported 707 new cases. The state's case total is now 142,416. There were 19 new deaths reported Saturday in Oregon. Our death toll is now 1,957. 407,869 people have received the vaccine. Meanwhile, The Oregon Health Authority has released its recommendation for the next steps in vaccination rollout. On Thursday, OHA's Vaccine Advisory Committee voted on the next four groups that should be prioritized after health care providers, educators, and senior citizens. According to the committee, people who are next up on the eligibility list include adults 65 and under with underlying conditions. Also on the list, frontline essential workers, adults and youth in custody over 16 years old, and people living in low-income or congregate senior housing. This accounts for an estimated 1 million Oregonians. The committee is made up of 27 members from diverse backgrounds with significant representation from communities of color. After these groups get vaccinated, the committee suggested people living in multi-generational homes to be next. After that, Anyone would be eligible for the vaccine.
0: Some different polls are suggesting some very different outlooks on Oregon's economy. A poll released in early January by the More Information Group showed that Oregonians had a mostly negative view of the state's economy, but are hopeful about the coming year. Another poll released just a week later by DHM Research said just about the opposite, that Oregonians are feeling as good about their financial situations as they did last year, but they believe things are going to get worse. These contradictory results show how subtle differences in questions can produce significantly different responses. The Moore poll asked questions regarding the economic progress of regions within Oregon, while the DHM poll asked about respondents' individual and statewide status. The results of the two polls do show some commonalities. Both show Oregonians recognize the slowing down of the economy, but lots of people are feeling relatively insulated themselves from its effects. Knock on wood, I hope you're one of them. Not everybody in our town is insulated from the effects. The more poll found about as many people are concerned about their finances as they were in 2019. 2019 saw a near-historic low joblessness rate. The current rate, though, is 6.6%, higher than average over the recent decades, but not nearly as bad as it got in spring and summer of last year. Some economists describe the recession as narrow, with the greatest effects being felt in certain industries, like restaurants and tourism.
1: A new state bill might give adults in custody the right to vote while incarcerated. Senate Bill 571 says that a person who is registered to vote and is physically inside a prison or jail will be allowed to vote, quote, in the county of the qualified elector's last voluntary residence. Currently, the only other states that allow people to vote from custody are Maine and Vermont. Washington, D.C. voted in July of 2020 to allow adults in custody to vote from prison. The bill also looks to allow people in prison to register to vote and ensures that they receive all election materials, such as pamphlets and ballots. The bill has eight Democratic sponsors in the Senate, including Janelle Bynum, Michael Dembro, and Andrea Salinas. In 1975, Oregon became one of the first states to re-enfranchise felons.
0: The guy who's been charged with a Southeast Portland car rampage is facing 14 charges for that hit and run. Paul Revis from Oregon City has been charged with murder, including other crimes, for that rampage on January 25th, left one dead and six injured. Revis drove his car through a crowd between Laurelhurst Park and Southeast 17th Avenue. In addition to second-degree murder, Revis has been charged with seven counts of failures to perform the duties of a driver, six counts of second-degree assault. He was arrested later that afternoon after he crashed his car and attempted to escape on foot. 77-year-old Jean Garrick died after Revis hit her twice with his car and sped off. Forgive me. Rivas has pled not guilty to all charges. He claims that his car was having brake problems. According to an interview with the Portland Police Bureau, he'd said at the time, injuries to victims could have been inflicted by another similar-looking Honda Element that wasn't driven by him. The motive of the rampage is unclear, but Portland Police has said they don't believe it was an act of terrorism or a biased crime.
1: And finally, some good news. 2021's Portland Rose Festival has a new official rose. While it is still unsure whether or not the festival will be able to be held in person, some details about the classic spring event have been released. The Portland Rose Festival Foundation revealed that the theme of the 2021 festival will be Hope Rains. In that spirit, the official rose of 2021's festival is the Burst of Hope Rose. Festival spokesman Rich Jarvis describes the flower as a, quote, colorful single-stem rose with large pink and yellow-striped blooms. Meanwhile, applications for Rose Festival Queen are open now until February 24th. There are 15 princess positions, and those selected receive a $3,500 scholarship. Last year's winner was Lincoln High's Anya Anand. The Burst of Hope will be sold at Portland Nursery at 5050 Southeast Stark, as well as their location at 9000 Southeast Division. Proceeds go to the nonprofit Portland Rose Festival Foundation. And that's next, today's, today's Quick, quick Six Local Rundown. rundown. X-ray. Up next is our conversation with Elizabeth Thiel, the president of the Portland Association of Teachers. Elizabeth spoke with Jefferson and Carly Quadros about Oregon's push to get teachers back into classrooms and where teachers stand on that initiative.
2: Governor Kate Brown is pushing for schools to reopen as soon as possible.
1: Part of that strategy
2: involves all
3: school employees
2: moving up in the waiting line for the COVID-19 vaccination. Even so, the plan has drawn a great deal of criticism. Joining us now to share her perspective on the situation is Elizabeth Thiel, president of the Portland Association of Teachers. Good morning, Elizabeth. Are you with us? Good morning. Yeah. Uh, I think we also still have Jefferson Smith on the line. Jefferson, are you there?
3: Honored to be here. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us.
2: All right. Yeah. Um, right. Let's conduct the interview. Let's get started. All right. Um, So, of course, there are pros and cons to having school remote and having it in person. We hear that students are suffering because of school closures, yet our high school graduation rate is the best it's been in years. Do you think remote learning is going to have a net negative impact?
4: Well, that is a a great question. Um, Remote learning is certainly nothing that we would have ever chosen uh, for our schools and our students. Um, We went to this model for health, to protect public health. Um, however now that we're in it teachers have been working incredibly hard to make it work um, as well as it can and find new ways to meet students needs and um, it i guess it remains to be seen exactly what the outcomes will will be but we know that students are learning we know that students are um, adapting as our teachers and we also know that there are lots of unmet needs that continue uh to uh need to be addressed in our community
3: elizabeth thank you again for taking this time and and for your work my my brother is a is a a teacher a public school teacher and uh, so i've been watching up close and we live next door to each other uh and Uh (laughs) i had a chance to watch his experience up close and he's getting his vaccination really soon and i of course am selfishly glad that he's getting his vaccination uh not entirely selfishly but not for him but uh, you know it's close to our lives, Uh, what was the origin of getting teachers uh, moved up in the line, prioritizing teachers in vaccine uh, receiving?
4: That is a great question. So first of all, I I just want to make clear that teachers did not ask to be put in the line in front of anybody. Um, nor did we make an agreement that being put in front of the line would mean anything about a reopening schools timeline. Um, so I haven't been invited into any conversations about creating the timeline for vaccines, but here's what I know. In December, uh, the governor made an announcement that um, the metrics about reopening schools be- became optional rather than required. That had to do with, um, looking at county case rates and making a, a statewide determination of who was allowed to go back. Those became optional. And at the same time, she uh, communicated a goal that all districts go back to live instruction by February. I believe that the idea of putting educators front in line um, that Governor Ron made um, came from her value of getting ed- educators vaccinated in order to open school sooner.
3: And is there, I think you started to answer this already, but is there an agreement to in fact do so? Is this a, is now, uh, now, because I mean, obviously the, I can't imagine that the current uh, teachers contract with school districts contemplated a global pandemic, but it had to have contemplated it, uh, if there are dangerous working conditions. Uh, how does that, how does that play out? What are the discussions going forward about teachers returning to the classrooms?
4: That is a great question. We, it, it is, thanks for acknowledging this is not something we ever planned for or anticipated. Um, and working conditions are absolutely at the heart of what we are able to advocate for through collective bargaining. So we've been in talks with the district all year um, since the summer about safe working conditions. Um, and as the, the landscape keeps changing, um, as planned and rules about, and, and, and honestly, the science about how COVID spreads keeps changing. We've had to stay, um, at the table of negotiating those, those terms to make our, make sure that any reopening is safe for students and teachers and, um, as part of the community. Um, and so we've been talking about things like air filtration, um, and, uh, sanitation and, and of course social distancing and spacing, but we don't have any particular, um, ultimatum at this point about uh, case counts or vaccinations related to reopening?
3: So I think what I heard you say, and then Carly, you you may want to go in a different direction or ask a different question, but I think what I heard you saying is this was not a negotiated result. You didn't go to the governor and say, hey, if you give us vaccinations, we will return. Uh, But it may be that because the contract says if stuff is safe, you should go to work and if it's not safe, you shouldn't go to work, that if the governor can get you all vaccinated, then school districts can say, go back to work. Do I have that about right?
4: <laughs> That's about right. Yeah, we did, not, we did not agree to anything about being vaccinated um, equaling going back to work. Um, we know that vaccinations for our community is a huge part in getting past this pandemic. Um, and there are a lot more factors about reopening schools than whether or not teachers have vaccines.
3: Carly, if you have another question far away, the question I will ask uh, um yeah one of so those other state factors. State officials so, yeah, have Carly, mentioned that
2: there's things? equity reasons in mind for yeah. this vaccination plan. They say that low-income working parents are really particularly burdened when school buildings are closed since they need to find childcare. How do you think that we can best serve low-income and otherwise marginalized students and children during this time?
4: Well, thank you for asking that. That is definitely a central concern of educators is um, how can we act um, in accordance with our beliefs about equity um, in this pandemic and there's been a lot of talk about what um, families of of color and students of color need and most affected families need and what we are asking for is the district to um, listen to those families. We've heard in other districts sometimes plans have been made to reopen schools and that the students most impacted by coronavirus the students whose families are most impacted are least likely to return. So we don't, we, we really believe strongly we need to avoid making plans based on the assumption that they'll serve certain students if those families are not interested in those plans. And so specifically, we know, um, in, in other school districts, uh, families who tend to have been most impacted by the coronavirus are the least likely to send their kids back to school when there are options to, to return to live learning.
1: All right, we got a, a text in is, from a listener oh, Carly, who's wondering, won't, won't
2: children just pass the virus from family to family and with the vaccine, you might still spread it? How safe is in-person
4: instruction, actually? So that's a, that is a, a big unknown. I know there there's a study uh, published uh, practically every day and the findings um, don't always agree um, because there's so much we don't know about the virus. Uh, we... we we know, um, that it transmits in communities. We know that, uh, the more community transmission there is, the, the less safe any of our public spaces are. Um, we don't know whether the vaccine even prevents transmission of the virus. Been eagerly awaiting, uh, verification one way or another, uh, from, from science of, of how that works. Um, and we are just, um, incredibly concerned that while the virus is still spreading in the community, Educators do not want to be part of increasing community spread and potentially leading to the death of family members of students. So there's just a lot we don't know and it's, and it's, it's an incredibly weighty decision when,
3: because it has
4: life and death implications.
3: Elizabeth, what are some of those other factors? You said, you started saying some of them, I think, but you definitely, you said uh, vaccines are not the only factor about how you define uh, school safety. What are some of the other markers that you're paying attention to as you're talking to your members?
4: Well, of course, the the working conditions, the, the learning conditions in our buildings are important. Uh, air ventilation is a huge one. Um, in Portland, uh, most of our buildings are around 80 years old and air circulation has been a problem for decades. Um,
1: yeah.
4: And we know that that's the number one um, factor in an internal setting. That's important for preventing the spread of, of COVID. I mean, of course, mask wearing is must be mandated and social distancing. Um, but beyond those things that we can do in schools, the spread of the virus in the community is crucial. Our schools aren't separate from our community. Students and teachers come from homes to schools and back to all the places that we go. Um, and we know that not all um Aspects of our community have been impacted equally by COVID. So while um, the data might show one story overall, when you disaggregate it, we know that the virus has impacted um, some communities in Portland, particularly the Latinx community, much more harshly than others. And we need to make sure that we are not um, putting our most impacted uh, families in more danger. That's a huge concern of educators.
3: So I think what I heard you say was, or what came to my mind was, so you, let's, okay, so let's say teachers are vaccinated and which helps protect them with 95% protection rate. Uh, Other students though could still transmit it to other students and those other students could transmit it back to their own families who could transmit it to other folks. So you could still have a risk of even while, even if young, even if young people, even students themselves, we're less likely to have the most serious results than their parents or grandparents. Uh, they could still be, you know, you can have a super spreader event essentially nearly every day in Portland public schools. Am I being too much of a, am I being too much of a a chicken little too much of a cry, a wolf crier?
4: That, so this, this is why this has been such a difficult conversation is that is exactly what, what the fear is. And, um, as I said, every day there's another study. There's a different article that has a different perspective. And um, the science is not yet clear. It's not established. And so, yes, that's exactly the scenario we're worried about. We know that in Europe, countries are closing schools right now because they contribute to the spread of coronavirus. And at the same time, um, there are studies saying that they don't. And so it, um, when, we, when we don't know the answer, um, we believe you have to act with, with safety um, as the bottom line. We don't want to risk people's lives.
3: And it occurs to me that if you have, like, if teachers get vaccines, and that means other people wait for vaccines, and if schools don't go back to live instruction, what do you think the consequence might that be? Any fallout that you're concerned about that circumstance?
4: Absolutely. I mean, this has been a terrible position to be in, um, and educators have been conflicted about how to proceed. We we weren't asked um, our <laughs> consent to be put in line in front of others, and it's been made clear that there's not room to adjust the plan. Um, educators have been put in line, have been offered opportunities to get vac- vaccinated, and it's been made clear that that. That is the plan that OHFA, OHA is is putting forward, Um, and absolutely those those conflicts are real, and it feels like an ethical dilemma. But one thing that has been made clear to me is that educators refusing to get vaccinated right now um, is not likely to help others get vaccinated sooner. Which is, of course, um, what what many educators have been have been asking: Is there a way to get these vaccines sooner? to our elderly, to people with pre-existing conditions, to other essential workers who have been working in in-person environments this whole time, um, and to communities of color who have, have been most impacted. And um, to the best of my knowledge, um, refusing to get the vaccine now doesn't do that. The Oregon Health Authority has the ability to... to um, to make those plans, and, and Governor Brown has had uh, the largest role, it seems, in making those plans.
3: And for me, I root for anybody getting the vaccine. I I don't throw any stone at anybody getting the vaccine. If you can get it, get it. If you show up late because they got a couple of extra, the only thing I want to make sure is that none of them go to waste. And I think there is a, a good argument for uh, for schools. If we can make schools safe. That gets a lot of people. Uh, It gets a lot of people back to their day. It gets a lot of people who work from home to have a more stable environment there. It gets people to be able to go. If they leave home to commute to work, it means that they don't have to leave a child uh, home alone at home. And I see the powerful advantages of that. And, of course, I can imagine a lot of teachers who didn't go into teaching to get rich saying, hey, you know, try to be selfless. But to be clear, I really root for that. Carly, what are your thoughts or any other questions you have?
2: Yeah, I have a question Um, kind of coming back to you said you weren't consulted on vaccine rollout decisions, but now the Oregon legislature is in session, presumably to pass more legislation on COVID. How would you and the Portland Association of Teachers like to be supported in the future?
4: Oh, man, that is a great question. I mean, I think th- that... I- this pandemic has been difficult because it's hard to see what two or three steps in front of you. And, and the, one, the thing that's right in front of us keeps shifting. Um, but looking as far forward as we can, one thing that is absolutely clear is that students' needs are going to be greater moving forward. We have all been through a very difficult time and um, comprehensive distance learning has not met all students' needs. Mental health has been a huge issue. And so moving forward and thinking to next year, we have got to make sure that our schools are incredibly well-funded and supported um, with with safety in mind, because as far as we know, we'll still need to be uh, socially distancing in, in the fall. Um, but we also need to make sure we have all of the supports that our students need, mental health supports, academic supports, small class sizes. Um, and those are things we've been asking for forever. Um, and it has now it is literally life and death. Um, We need our schools to be fully funded. That is what I would ask of our legislature.
3: I want to go back to something that Carly had asked early on, which is about the impact on students, and you've mentioned that to us, but is there any way of sort of quantifying that or illustrating that or characterizing that so people can understand? I think people understand like the why it's been hard, right, and it's been stressful for everybody. We've seen the manifestation of that stress heck we just you know our our mayor just pepper sprayed somebody I mean it's going people are stressed out all over the place the and and people understand that I think that it's hard to teach through a screen when you can't have even even mandatory for cameras to be turned on so having accountability with students you know holding students accountable can be hard how much learning have students lost is there any way to illustrate or characterize or quantify that
4: well, first of all, I want to reframe that just a little bit. Students are Please. always learning. Um, you know, we, we often talk about learning in, in terms of, you know, math or reading test scores. Um, but educators and, and parents and, and anybody who knows kids uh, knows that there's a lot more to learning than just what shows up on a test. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to underline that students are learning. Um, we're all learning right now. And the lessons put before us by the pandemic maybe different lessons than the ones we had planned to teach in our curriculum. <laughs> but when we've got to talk with kids about the situation we're in right now, how our communities can take care of one another, how we uh, band together in a crisis, um, how we build relationships in difficult times. Um, those are all crucial things to be learning. And I don't want to undervalue um, that sometimes shifts need to be taken um, in order to address what's right in front of us instead of, uh, sticking to a plan that was made without knowledge of our circumstances, right? Um, But in terms of how much learning loss has occurred with those, like, testable subjects, um, you know, teachers work every day with our students to to, to understand what their needs are and and where they're at and adjust the curriculum um, and learning to meet the needs and, and interests uh, of our students, and that is what we are trained to do. That's what teachers professionals are professionals in doing, and that is what we will be doing in the fall, looking at the kids in front of us and seeing what, what they need and how we can adjust the tools we have to best meet their needs.
3: Yeah, and, and my curiosity isn't just about testable subjects. I, I mean, to me, uh, something that it, it seems a lot riding on it is about the development of sort of our next generation and what happens when, more, when for a year or for a year and a half or whatever period of time so much of that development is happening at home and on a screen and not in a school building. And that's not even me. And maybe they're, maybe that's going to create greater resilience. Maybe that's going to create greater home buzz. Who knows? There could be a number of silver linings but, but yeah. anything that we already understand or speculate about the impact on our students might've been Carly's very first question. I remain, yeah. I remain really fascinated by.
4: Well, I mean, I, I first of all, absolutely. This, this, situation has impacted different people differently. We've definitely heard from um, some families that their students really like comprehensive distance learning, that it's less stressful to be home and not in a social environment. <clears throat> but I think um, there are many, many uh, students and adults who have a hard time connecting um, with learning without those social elements. Um, so not everybody has the same needs. Um, moving forward, I mean, I, I believe a, a huge thing that we're going to need to address Which we, again, we already needed to address with our students, but it's crucial now, is digital learning and how we interact, how, how we, uh, you know, maintain and center our humanity in a world that is increasingly, uh, built around screens and digital interaction. Um, and that's, again, been a, been a, uh, struggle sometimes in schools for a decade or so, how to get kids off their screens to be engaging with one another. And I can only imagine that will be uh, brought to whole new levels <laughs> coming back when we've been having kids on screens uh, for for a year. Um, but we we have to, schools have always been asked or increasingly asked to meet all the needs of kids, our, their physical needs, um, their mo- mental health needs in addition to their academic needs. And um, if that is the model um, in our society that schools take care of all of kids' needs, We really need to look at funding our schools uh, to be able to do that well.
2: And what an important note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us, Elizabeth.
4: It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the
3: conversation.
0: Thanks for your service and thanks for your time.
4: Yeah, likewise.
0: Thanks to Elizabeth for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.
3: X-Ray.